You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. We're in Luke chapter 21, verse 20 today. So go ahead and flip there. If you need a Bible, we've got extra Bibles in the back, so you can just lift your hand and we'll get you one. And also take out your note paper, because uh, we're going deep today. Roll up your sleeves and tie your shoelaces really tight. I don't know, whatever. And let's pray. Uh, Lord, just as we come to the text once again that has caused just so many to scratch their heads and even argue and get all red and sweaty, Lord, trying to figure out what you're talking about here. Uh, Before we come to the word of God, we come to the God of the word. And we ask that you would just give us insight into every word and every phrase and Uh, We just thank you so much that you're a God whose word never fails. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. We just pray that as we study, Lord, you would just keep us from undue dogmatism. Lord, that we would come to the text in humility, willing to learn, willing to be stretched, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 and to search the scriptures daily to find out if these things are really so. And Lord, we love you. We pray that you would just spur us to look up today and await your glorious return. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was 14 going on 15, oh, this is not a song out of the sound of music. Uh, When I was 14 going on 15, uh, that's when I was lit on fire for Jesus. I was the summer before my freshman year. I went to a youth camp and uh, a whole bunch of guys, high school guys and me just spent some time one night worshiping Jesus. And we were baptized with the Holy Spirit and given this boldness from the Lord that was just incredible. We went back to our schools and we were just firebrands for the gospel, just handing out tracts to everyone we could see, witnessing to everybody in our class. They knew what we believed. They knew what we stood for. We were zealous and perhaps overly zealous in some things. But, uh, you know, as we you know, we're confessing just youthful lust to one another and wanting to be pure and walk the straight and narrow. We started this little club called Bachelors to the Rapture. And, uh, you know, we made a, a pact with each other that we would, you know, just not worry about girls, but just go wholeheartedly and follow hard after Jesus. And that was all well and good for a little while until I started chatting with the little flute player in band class next to me. No, I didn't play the flute, but, <laughs> and then finally I was just like, oh man, bachelors of the rapture, you know, that's probably not going to happen forever. I mean, really, I, surely I'll probably get married someday. You know? And I got my eyes off of the sky. I got my eyes off of Jesus coming back. And it's not that I was like a Romeo or anything in school, but I certainly, um, you know, wasn't doing the full on bachelor thing. And, uh, in the, you know, the, all of it discourse, Luke chapter 21 that we're on, it's to all of us like that, who've gotten our eyes off of Jesus's coming. You know, perhaps there was a time in your life when you were zealous for the Lord and couldn't wait his return. And daily you were looking up in the sky. Are you coming Lord? I'm your faithful servant. I want to be, I want to be living for you wholeheartedly so that when you come, I won't be ashamed. And yet it's so easy as we go in the day and the day out of the, of the daily lives to get our eyes off the Lord, to get our eyes off of the fact that he has an imminent coming. He's coming at any minute and we don't know the day or the hour. And so the Olivet Discourse is a splash of cold water in the face, if you will, to wake us up, to look for Jesus to come. It's to get us to focus our eyes skyward once again and to say like John at the end of Revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. The spirit and the bride say, come, you know, come Lord. And so we're in actually part three of the Olivet Discourse. And uh, you remember that at the beginning of the chapter, Uh, The disciples and Jesus were walking through the temple and the disciples were just in awe at the buildings and the gold and the donations and the prizes practically uh, around the temple. And they said to Jesus, Lord, see what manner of buildings these are. 
And Jesus says, you know what? I'm not impressed. He says, assuredly, I tell you, the day will come when not one of these stones of the temple will be left standing upon one another. And that was very shocking to the disciples. You know, it meant the end of Judaism as they knew it. It meant the destruction of the nation. It was a very fearful thing to hear that. And so they asked Jesus three questions. You can read about it at the beginning of Luke 21. Matthew adds one of the questions. But they said, Lord, when will these things be? When will the destruction of the temple be? What will be the the end of the age? Uh, And what will be the sign of your coming? And so Jesus gets into, Matthew records two, two chapters of an answer to this. As Jesus goes up on the Mount of Olives with Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And he tells them the answer. So here we are in Luke. Now we've been studying, you know, they ask, what are the signs? What are the signs? And so Jesus gave us, we've been studying the last two weeks, and he gave us the signs that will show and signify that the time is coming soon. You know, and he says that they're going to start out small like birth pangs. But then as the time comes, as the labor comes forth, the signs get bigger and more frequent and more intense. And so I encourage you, if you haven't been here the last two weeks, to get on the church website and to listen to the last two weeks Bible studies because we went really in depth. And this morning, we're not going to do as much review as we've been doing. But Jesus tells them that the signs of his coming, that are going to be many coming in his name, claiming to be the Christ. He says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes in diverse places. You know, there's going to be um, uh, pestilence and famine and just horrible stuff. Now, we all know that there's always been wars. There's always been earthquakes. There have always been pestilence. There have always been famine. These things have always been happening. But they were little birth pangs at the beginning. And as you notice... As time is going by, they're becoming more frequent, more intense. In fact, couldn't be a better time right now to be going through the Olivet Discourse because last month or January, there was an earthquake in Haiti, 7. I don't know, 3 or something, and 217,000 people died. And just yesterday, an earthquake in Chile that was 8.8 on the Richter scale that would have sent a tsunami going across the ocean clear to Hawaii. Yesterday, they were expecting by one in the afternoon an eight-foot wall of wave to hit Hawaii, and it actually didn't. Scientists are scratching their head wondering what happened. Maybe the mercy of the Lord, I don't know. But uh, I was sitting there studying for this, and I had Fox News like pop up. I'd look, see, the, watch the waves in Hawaii, and get back and keep studying. It's like, oh, is it happening? You know, just looking and going, wow, Lord, the signposts. The signposts are getting more frequent. And you can listen to last week's Bible study. We, we talked about how the, the earthquakes, the, the deathly earthquakes have increased dramatically, even in the last 50 years. Just incredible. So he gives these signs that, that are going to get worse and worse as his coming appears. He says, even before these signs happen, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be delivered up for my namesake. But don't worry, this time of persecution will turn out as an occasion for testimony and for witnessing. But don't worry about what you're going to say, because in that very hour, I'll speak for you. But now we get to another kind of transition in the Olivet Discourse as we get to verse 20. And we see the telescoping lens of the text, almost like different camera angles of what's going on. And as we read verse uh, 20 through 24, we'll see that Luke's gospel is a little bit different than Matthew and Mark's as it talks about even nearly the same thing. So let's just go ahead and read uh, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. And so the disciples ask, you know, when, when will the temple be destroyed? What will the signs of your coming be? And so Jesus and Luke, Luke kind of takes part of this and, and to answer this question, he says, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, then you'll know that the temple is about to be destroyed. And he, he answers their question uh, in a different way in Matthew's gospel. But then he goes on to say, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. 
and let not those who are in the country enter her. So if you live in Jerusalem, get out of Jerusalem. If you live around Jerusalem, get away from Jerusalem. If you live in Israel, go to another country. You don't want to be in Jerusalem during this time. And as you study uh, the, uh, the, the age that he's talking about here, that's certainly the truth. Then he goes on to say, for these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. So Jesus says, woe to those women that are going to be there. That, that word woe is an exclamation of grief and sorrow. You know, he's weeping as he says this. Oh, the women that are going to be in Jerusalem. Normally being pregnant and having babies is a joyful time. But man, it's not going to be a good time to have babies during this age, during this season. Now, as you look at Luke's gospel, it's clear that he's talking about the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in 68 to 70 AD. We've talked a lot about that siege when the general Titus came in and, uh, you know, took over the city, specifically said, don't destroy the temple. But either, you know, in a rage or in a drunken stupor, one soldier tossed the torch in. It melted all the gold seeped between the cracks. And so the Romans had to tear down the temple to get the gold over a billion dollars worth of gold snuck in between the cracks. So the temple had to be destroyed, miraculously fulfilling Jesus's prophecy about every stone being overturned off the temple. So he's speaking about the 70 AD conquest here of Rome over Jerusalem. Now, interesting, there was a Jewish historian named Josephus who was captured by the Romans and they found out he was a gifted historian. And so they made Josephus follow uh, the Romans all across Israel in their conquest. And he's written some incredible stories about an area called Masada, just off the Dead Sea. Masada is like a big round cliff with a large area on top where Herod actually built this beautiful palace and had all sorts of, uh, it was a whole city with a special waterway system way up on, I don't know if you've been to Abert Rim down by uh, Summer, Summer Lake and all that, but just this huge cliff, like way up there, uh, there's a city. And Herod just vacationed there. It was a beautiful place. Herod was always afraid he'd get attacked. So he's like, get me on the top of a cliff where no one can get me. Well, as Rome was attacking Israel, a bunch of Jews were able to climb up this rock wall and they conquered this top of Masada. Well, after the, the, the conquest of the Romans, the, the Romans found them up there and they completely encircled uh, this, this uh, cliff area. And to this day, you can see the Roman encampment that was there. They're, the squares where they marked off with the rocks where each group of soldiers was to stay. And the Romans used uh, Jewish slaves to build a dirt ramp up to the top of this cliff. And of course, the Jews wouldn't fire on their own slaves that were coming up against them. So they let them build this ramp until the Romans were able to push a large battering ram up and knock the wall of Masada down coming in. And when they came in, do you know what they found? They found that every Jew had committed suicide. They'd rather die than to become Roman slaves. And so 10 men went home and they, you know, men would go home and kill their families. And then 10 men went home and killed the rest of the other men. And then one man finally did himself in. And Josephus was there to document the whole thing. And then they went to Northern Galilee where there's a place called Gamla. And you can look all these places up on BiblePlaces.com. And Gamla was almost the, the opposite. You had to go down into this valley and up to this other cliff where there was a city called Gamla with a synagogue that people believe Jesus taught at. Well, a bunch of Jews went and hid up there in Gamla and the Romans had to go down into the, down into the valley. And for about a year, they tried to, you know, they besieged this city until finally they were able to break through. And you know what they had found? They found that all of the Jews went to the peak of this triangular peak at Gamla and they all threw themselves off the cliff and Josephus was there to document all of this and so incredible writings that Josephus had and guess where else he was he was in Jerusalem in 70 AD 
And he writes some incredible things. I'm going to read some of it to you. He wrote that 600,000 Jews died of starvation. And uh, it, it's an interesting thing to read of this because on Wednesday nights right now, we're in 2 Kings where it talks about the Assyrians uh, besieging the little hill of Samaria, Israel's capital. And for, for, you know, all the water, all the food was cut off that people began, you know, eating disgusting things. You know, you read about how a donkey's head was sold for about three quarters of the price of a live horse, you know, and buy a donkey's head and eat the donkey's head, you know, and they could buy a half liter of dove droppings for a few months wages. And that was their meal was dove droppings. And so you just see this disgusting thing. Now, the interesting thing is, is the Lord doesn't want that for Israel. The Lord never want these siegings to happen. In Leviticus chapter 26, the Lord says, if you obey me, I'll bless you. Oh, how I'll bless you. You know, your threshing floors will be overflowing with wheat. You won't be able to store enough wheat in your storehouses. The wine presses will be overflowing with grapes and wine. Oh, if you obey me, don't you understand? I'll bless you. But later on in the chapter, if you disobey me, there's judgment that comes. There's cursings. There's times of starving. There's times of your enemy you know, putting up a siege wall around you. Oh, but if you'll obey me, a hundred of you will chase 10,000, he said. I'll give you victory you wouldn't even imagine. And so here we see that in 70 AD, just after the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah, they hardened their hearts. We see 600,000 Jews dying of starvation. Josephus writes that their bodies were tossed over the wall at a rate of 4,000 each day. Famine and starvation drove the Jews mad. Wives would snatch food from husbands. Children would snatch food from fathers. And most pitiful of all, mothers from the mouths of the infants. Old men would be beaten and women would be drugged by their hair to get at their food. There was no compassion, Josephus writes. Children were lifted up, clutching their morsels of food and dashed to the ground. Conditions were so bad. Josephus saw one woman kill her own child, roast his body and eat half of it while storing the rest for later. And I struggle sharing that. But as we're in second Kings, we read of the same thing. Two women come to King Jehoram saying, help me, help me. This woman over here promised that if we boiled my son and ate him today that tomorrow we could boil her son and eat him tomorrow and she's withholding her son from me and Jehoram tore his clothes and wept at where their nation had come if they would have just obeyed him they would never see these things and in lamentations Jeremiah is crying over the state of the nation and he writes about how the hands of compassionate mothers are eating their children. It's disgusting that it comes to that point that people won't bow their knee to the Lord and repent of their sin and say, God, we've sinned against you. We've put up idols in, in, in front of you. We've been practicing sexual immorality and witchcraft and covetousness. And Lord, we are a wicked people, but Lord, would you come in your mercy and cleanse us and forgive us and do a work of revival in our midst. And oh, that he wouldn't come like fire and bring food. And we actually study that he did just that in 2 Kings. And so we just see that so sad. This is happening just years after Jesus ascended into heaven. He goes on to write, The roofs were thronged with women and babies, completely exhausted. The alleys were packed with old, famished men and women. Walking corpses collapsed and died wherever their last bit of energy would take them. Some Jews swallowed their gold coins and surrendered to the Romans. When one of the Jews was caught picking out the gold coins from his waist, word got around to the Roman camp that the Jews were full of gold. So from then on, the Romans began gutting their Jewish prisoners and searching for loot. No other city, Josephus writes, ever endures so much misery since the world began. And these miseries were just what Jesus predicted. 
And yet it didn't have to be so. When Jesus rode on the donkey into Jerusalem, he stopped at the crest of the Mount of Olives and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that slays and kills her prophets. Oh, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have it. And then he prophesies of the the siege and the destruction that's going to come upon them. Uh, by the Romans. Over a million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans and 95,000 were taken captive as prisoners. When the walls fell down and the Romans came in, a number of Jews tried to hide in the caves below Jerusalem. But Josephus writes, but this proved to be a dream for they were not destined to escape either God or the Romans. And it's interesting that by this point, even a Jewish historian, not a Christian, said, this is an act of God. You know, this is a, a, a siege. This is a captivity of biblical proportions here. It's not just about the Romans here. This is something that God is doing, just like God used the Assyrians to chasten and discipline Israel, just like God used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army in 586 BC to chasten and to correct Judah. The Lord is using the Romans right now to chasten and correct Israel who just rejected their Messiah and nailed him to a tree. That's what was going on. And Jesus predicted that. And he said, when you are in Jerusalem and you see it surrounded by armies, get out of there. It's going to be bad. Well, then look at verse 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And we see that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. The Jews were spread throughout all the world. You know, Russia, Hungary, you know, all across Europe, all across Asia, all the way to America, as we know. And for the last 2,000 years, they've been scattered to all the different nations. There was a little gleam of hope in 132 to 135 AD, a man named Simon Bar, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> Cahaba, sorry, some, some names you just can't get your tongue to say. Uh, he was given this name as the son of the star, Simon, the son of the star. He rose up and was embraced as the Messiah and he led this guerrilla campaign against the Romans. He had some success conquering Jerusalem and taking over Jerusalem again. He even began rebuilding the temple, but then the Romans surrounded him and were able to conquer him again and they killed 500,000 Jews, including his army. Later on, they named him Simon Barcoziba, or Son of Disappointment. And something we'll talk about next week is every false Christ or false Messiah or false gleam of hope that comes and tries to, be, tries to set themselves up as the Messiah, every one of them leads their people into a massive slaughter. And then they're, they're obviously shown to be crazy people. And uh, from 647 after the Romans, clear up to 1917, Jerusalem has been a Muslim city, except for a few brief periods during the Crusades. And so just as we read, you know, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of Gentiles is fulfilled. Then June 6, 1967 came as uh, Israel by this point was a nation again. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But on June 6, 1967, uh, Israel kind of had their own D-Day during the Six-Day War when Moshe Dayan, a paratrooper general, led his Israeli paratroopers into Jerusalem. And he conquered Jerusalem. It was an incredible miracle as you study it. He brings them in, conquers Jerusalem. Everyone's waving the Star of David flag. It was one of the most exciting days since May 14th, 1948. And one of the most exciting days since 70 AD as Jerusalem was finally in the hands of the Jews once again. And yet the Muslims brought an uproar that uh, their land was being conquered. And so uh, this man, Moshe Dayan, divided the city into four different religious uh, quadrants. And he gave the Temple Mount 
to the Muslims. The most valuable piece of real estate to the Jews, he handed over to the Muslims, basically taking the city for nothing. And so still, to this day, uh, the, uh, the Temple Mount is being trodden over by Gentiles. And I actually got to go there a couple years ago. And uh, my first trip to Israel, we weren't allowed on the Temple Mount. There was so much warfare going on, battles that had just happened uh, right before I went. The second time I went, we were able to go up there and walk on the temple, the very stones that, that Jesus walked on and to go right up to the Dome of the Rock. I mean, it was just an incredible, incredible time. But prophecy fulfilled. One Gentile guy trotting over uh, the Temple Mount there. And so as we look at this, verse 20 through 24 At first read, it definitely seems to be speaking about 70 AD, Romans taking over Jerusalem. But then as you look over, and I want you to flip with me over to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at his account of this section. And remember, the Olivet Discourse has kind of a telescoping view. One minute you'll be looking at it and you'll see uh, 70 AD. Another minute you'll be looking at perhaps the same section, and you'll see a dual fulfillment of the prophecy that it would be pointing toward the tribulation period. You know, one minute you're looking at something that seems like the second coming, but then you look again and you see, oh, it it perhaps could be speaking of a pre-trib rapture here. There's There's a telescoping angle about the chapter that really causes it to be difficult when you study it. And so... Uh, you can just take whatever I tell you and take it home and study it. If you disagree with me, that is okay. You know, um, I'm not going to try to be dogmatic today. But look at Matthew's account of this section in Matthew 24, verse 15, 15 through 22. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, Whoever reads, let him understand. And we're just going to read a little bit just to kind of see how similar these two passages are. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And so the similar passages, a man named Dr. Constables uh, was a professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary. He says that these similar passages in Matthew and Mark are sufficiently different to that in Luke to alert the reader to the fact that they deal with different incidents from what Luke describes. And so we see that, you know, this seems to be more talking about the tribulation as he mentions the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And so then he says, whoever hears, let him understand. How many of you heard? Okay, so it's time for us to understand. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Daniel's 70 weeks. So flip over to Daniel chapter 9. Verse 24, we're going to look at verses 24 through 27. Everybody there, if you're not going to turn there, you're not going to understand. Don't even try. So if you got to get a Bible, if you have to scooch closer to someone with one, then um, do so by all means. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. This is a verse 24 is a verse we've gone over every week now. And it it tells us the purpose of the tribulation period. It says 70 weeks are determined. You might underline 70 weeks. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So what are these 70 weeks for? Who are they for and what are they for? Well, we see who they're for there. They're for your people, Israel, and for your holy city, Jerusalem. Okay, And then you might just take your pen and put a bullet point next to each thing. 
These 70 weeks are for these purposes to finish the transgression and make an end of sins for Israel. Okay. They're to make a reconciliation for iniquity. They're to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up all of these visions about this time over Jerusalem. And finally, and most importantly, to anoint Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus as the Messiah. And so let's take this apart a little bit. We see 70 weeks. The word week in the Hebrew is the word heptad, and it means seven, okay? It's kind of like a unit of measurement, like a dozen, okay? So when we say week, we're basically saying kind of a dozen or seven, a little bit more than a half dozen. So it's a unit of measurement, and so we're speaking of 70 weeks of seven years, okay? 70 weeks of seven years, 70 times Seven, basically. And to understand what heptad or weak means, we need to look at where it's first mentioned in scripture to unlock the key here. This is called the rule of first mention. And so if you look in Genesis chapter 29, which you don't have to flip there today, I've got it up there on the slide for you. It's the story of Jacob working for Laban to get his wife, Rachel. You guys all know and love that story. Well, in Genesis 29, verse 20, it says, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Uh, What a Romeo. You know what I mean? When I was engaged, I had that up in Lindsay's um, apartment. This is how it is for me, honey. You know, like six-month engagement. It seems like it doesn't seem like only a few days. I'm I'm dying here. But um, then in verse 26, and late, so yeah, kind of skip some of the story. Finally, Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me with, with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter, Rachel, as wife also. And so, uh, week, heptad, speaking of seven years. So 70 weeks, how long of a period is that? 70 weeks, just write down in your journal, 70 times seven or 490 years. Okay, so 490 years. You can insert 490 years in your Bible right there and read that verse uh, to say, 490 years are determined for your people and for your holy city. Okay. Um, then we have verse 25. Let's, let's move on a little bit. So 490 years. That's, so all of those things will happen for Israel. Verse 25 is a prophecy from Jerusalem's reconstruction until Messiah comes. Okay. So let's read it. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now don't get confused. Seven weeks. So seven times seven. How much is that? 49. It took Nehemiah 49 years to rebuild the wall. Okay. And, and so uh, from the day that Artaxerxes said, go Nehemiah, you have my blessing, go rebuild the wall, go rebuild the city. 49 years went by and all of that was taken place. Then another period of 62 weeks took place before Messiah the Prince came. It says the street shall be built again and the wall even in trouble sometimes. So this other period, we have seven weeks and 62 weeks equals 69 weeks. Okay. How many weeks were determined? 70, right? The very beginning, 70 weeks. So right now we've only got 69 weeks mentioned. 69 weeks is 483 years or 173,880 days on the Jewish calendar. So what, Rory? I really don't care. Well, let's go to the next slide. (laughs) Okay. From 
the day, March 14th, 445 BC on the left, that Artaxerxes says, Nehemiah, my cutbearer, you have my blessing. I see that you're grieved over the destruction of your city. Go back and rebuild it. So he does. From March 14th, 445 BC, 69 weeks or 173,880 days later is April 6th, 32 AD. And what happened that day? Messiah, the prince, came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Oh, his word stands true, doesn't it? Bible prophecy is incredible. It validates the word. It's an incredible tool that we can use to prove to people that the Bible is inspired, that it's God breathed. It's not just the writing of a bunch of opium users, you know, from back in the day. The Holy Spirit breathed it out. It's inspired by the Lord. And it's an incredible thing. So, you know, this is all very exciting. Well, then in verse 26, we read about after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So what happened at 62 weeks? You know, he rides in. On, maybe it wasn't like that. You know, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Comes trotting in on the donkey. But after that, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. What is that talking about? When Jesus was crucified, you think he wanted that? Oh, this is for me, everybody. No, he was killed for us, not for himself, for us. Paul tells us he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who destroyed the city and the sanctuary? The Romans. And so we read that the Antichrist who's to come, he'll be of some sort of Roman descent there. He shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then we read verse 27. Then he, this is speaking of the Antichrist, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. How long is one week? Seven years, exactly. Someone said seven, I thought you said seven days. I'm like, yes, but it's also seven years. Seven years, this covenant will be made. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven-year period, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. I'm not even going to read this last sentence because it's kind of confusing. Let me read it in the uh, New Living for you. And as a climax to all of his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. So he makes a covenant for seven weeks, or excuse me, for one week, which is seven years. In the middle of this seven-year period, three and a half years into it, uh, the abomination of desolation takes place, where the Antichrist puts a stop to Jewish sacrifices, and he stands in the temple and declares himself to be God and demands to be worshipped. And we see that anybody that doesn't worship him will be killed or or will be persecuted. And so you can read about this in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, and Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Now, let me just show you the timeline real quick, or at least what I believe the timeline is. There's a couple other views that to me don't make sense, but you guys can search for yourself and see, you know, check it out for yourself. I totally understand. Okay, so we have in the blue section the 69 weeks, 173, 880 days from March 14th, Nehemiah building the wall to April 6th, 32 AD, Messiah coming in on the donkey. Then we have him crucified on April 11th. And then after that, there's 14,000 days before 70 AD, August 5th, when the Romans destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. Some pictures up there of the temple stones uh, and a big pile that archaeologists have found now. And then I have a picture of a stopwatch. Why do I have a picture of a stopwatch? Because in Bible prophecy, God's timepiece is not a Rolex or a Timex or a Casio. It's the nation of Israel. Remember Daniel chapter 9 verse 24, these 70 weeks are determined for who? For Israel. 
And if Israel is no longer around, there's no way for these prophecies to be fulfilled concerning Israel. Well, in 70 AD, that timepiece was stopped, I believe. And uh, 1878 years goes by. Now, during those years, I mean, if you were a Bible scholar and you were trying to figure out end times, I certainly can understand how you'd be thinking, oh gosh, Caesar Nero must be the Antichrist and the destruction of Rome must have been, you know, that must have been the abomination of desolation. And well, what in the world is going on now? It's 1860, you know, and the civil war is going on and I have no clue when Jesus is coming. You know, you're just like totally blown away. And no doubt you'd be like, am I an amillennialist? Am I a post? I have no clue. Eschatology would have been very difficult to understand until May 14th, 1948, when Israel became a nation again, and the prophetic timepiece started up again. We already have 69 weeks out of the 70 taken care of. They are history. There's one seven-year period that's coming that we don't know when it's going to start. All we know is Israel is around, and that's a very exciting thing. Because the timepiece is clicking. You can hear that sound. So sometime here, that red little section, a seven-year period, the 70th week. And if you can see it, there's a little black line right down the middle. When the abomination of desolations take place, three and a half years after that, uh, the second coming and the millennial reign, all of that takes place. Hopefully I'm not blowing your minds yet, unless it's in a good way. Hope, Hope the Lord is blowing your mind. Um, so don't you love how Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation? And if anyone is reading this, let him understand it. You know, I believe that during the tribulation period, I don't believe the church is going to be here personally, but I believe people are going to be going, what in the world is going on in this earth? You know, and they'll probably, some of them pick up a Bible. Some of them will start reading. Some of them will have a little bit of an understanding and they'll read this verse 15 and they'll go, Oh, crikey. Remember yesterday? When uh, that weird guy, you know, from Rome, you know, stood up in the middle of the temple and everyone was supposed to worship him. Oh, get out of Jerusalem. Start running. And uh, in other words, yes, Jesus is saying, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you and get out of there. Get out of there. Things are going to get really bad for the Jews at this point after the abomination abomination of desolation and they need to get out of dodge now there was a historical event before jesus's day when a man named antiochus epiphanes uh attacked jerusalem and many of the jews thought the abomination of desolation had already happened when antiochus epiphanes whose name means god made manifest you know so we've got a false christ right there He attacks Jerusalem, he kills 80,000 Jews, massacres them, and captures 40,000. He goes into the temple, slaughters a pig, and sacrifices it um, on the altar. And then he sets up this shrine to Jupiter there in the temple. Uh, Then this incredible family, you know, like the guys from Bonanza, you know, named Judas Maccabeus, or they're known as the Maccabean family. They came in and guerrilla warfare tactics completely delivered um, Israel just with this family alone. And, uh, but Jesus says that the abomination of desolation is a future event. It's an event that's still to come. In other words, Antiochus Epiphanes was just a prototype. He's just a type of something that's going to happen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul tells us, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And that man of sin is revealed, that son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that's called God, um, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. It's exactly what's going to happen. He says, Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you. You know, this is what's going to happen. And it's a future event. Well, some people would say, well, after Paul, what about 70 AD? What about Caesar Nero? I mean, that guy was crazy. That guy was saying that he was God and he demanded to be worshiped. Interesting thing is Nero didn't come into Jerusalem and sit in the temple declaring himself to be God. He destroyed the temple. You know, he destroyed the temple and Revelation chapter 13, you can flip over there. Um, I'm trying not to have you guys flip too much. I don't want to make it more complicated than it already is. But uh, Rev 13, Revelation 13, verse five, 
Listen to what's going to happen during this abomination of desolation. The Antichrist is given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. So first half of the tribulation for three and a half years, he's given this authority. Then he opens his mouth and that always gets us in trouble. Then he opens his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So something we see about end times, tribulation, uh, the persecution, all this stuff, it's on a global scale, the entire world, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, back then it seemed like, oh, every tribe, that's all the way to Spain, and that's about as far. But man, the world, we see the world. And nowadays, you know, Daniel says that in that time there's going to be an increase of knowledge. You know, Revelation tells us at that time, the two witnesses will be killed and the whole world will be able to watch it. Now, back then, no one could understand that. Well, how could they watch it? And, you know, what about the people down in Somalia? Internet, television, all of that stuff makes this possible for global worship to happen for this guy, for this Antichrist. And, um, and so, you know, I, I personally don't believe it was Nero. I don't think he's the... The Antichrist, although certainly he was an Antichrist, uh, but I don't believe he's the one spoken of by the prophets. Um, We read that the Antichrist will come into the temple and he will set himself up to be God in the temple. He'll break his covenant with Israel in the temple. Now, currently, the temple is non-existent. You know, a little aerial view of the Temple Mount. We've got the big square is uh, the wall around the old city, Jerusalem, okay? Um, then you have the, the Dome of the Rock there and the original platform that those many, uh, that section there, it's original temple stones. And so right now you look at it, it's like, oh yeah, you know, the Lord's not coming back forever. I mean, there's no temple there, the Dome of the Rocks, the Muslims have control. Uh, certainly the Lord is slack concerning his promises and we don't need to worry about it. No, 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 that's not the case. The Lord is not slack concerning uh, his promises right now. There's no temple there. The only thing we have to remind us of the temple is the pile of rubble that's in the backyard, basically, uh, for that. The incredible thing is that archeologists have been able to pinpoint exactly where the temple used to sit. Uh, but some believe that it, um, could just be built just North of the dome of the rock. Uh, there's some things like you see the wall up here in the front. There's the Eastern gate that the Turks, uh, blocked up because they know the Messiah is going to come back into that gate with all of his saints. So they blocked it up. So that can't happen. And all of that in front of the wall is burial grounds, graveyards. So that, you know, well, certainly the Messiah can't walk on these graves and, and fulfill the prophecy by going through that wall. An interesting thing is, or going through that gate from the Mount of Olives, if you were to look directly through that gate, it would go directly into the sanctuary where uh, the, the priests would look out, so as they could look out and see the, uh, the, the Mount of Olives there. So, you know, perhaps that's what's going to happen, is that the temple will be built next to the Dome of the Rock. And all that would need to happen right now, guys, is that some man needs to come on the scene with a golden tongue and bring peace between the Jews and the Muslims so that this temple could be built. You read Revelation chapter 14, and John is given a measuring stick to measure the temple. And he's told by the angel to leave the court of the Gentiles the way that it is. You know, I personally believe that means the Dome of the Rock is still going to be there. There's going to be this ecumenical, multi-faith movement that the Antichrist is going to bring about. And you know what, guys? We're almost there. We're almost there. In fact, I believe it could happen any day. If you go to Jerusalem today, you go to a place called the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute is a group of zealous Jews, which they all are. Their whole focus is to rebuild the temple. And so if you walk in that door, you begin to, it's a huge building actually, and you begin to see everything. All the artifacts of the temple have been remade exactly as Moses said to make them. They've got the candlesticks. They've got the table of showbread. They've got the priestly garments. They're even breeding the red heifers for the sacrifices. It's all ready to go. The only thing they don't have 
is the Ark of the Covenant, which I personally believe is in heaven. But, uh, you know, some people believe in, that they found it down in Africa with some tribes down in Africa. Some one guy, Dr. Dino, thought he found it underneath the Temple Mount or whatever. But um, uh, I also believe that they don't need the Ark of the Covenant because the Antichrist is going to make his own funky little Ark type thing. You read about it in Revelation 13, this weird new high technology sort of thing that's going to be worshipped. So, um, so the Jews have everything set to, re- to rebuild the temple. Everything's built. Let's get the show on the road. Someone has to come on the scene and bring peace there. And so all of this is in the works right now for the temple to be built. And the Antichrist can come on the scene. And so Matthew tells us the same thing that Luke tells us. That when you see the abomination of desolation happen three and a half years into the tribulation, run. If you're in Jerusalem, get out of Jerusalem. If you're outside Jerusalem, get farther out of Jerusalem. Run, uh, you know, run to the hills. Something about this Antichrist setting himself up in the temple to be God is going to prompt the Jews to say, this isn't right. And many of them will refuse and be persecuted and have to flee. They'll have to flee to the wilderness. And then Matthew's gospel says in verse 21, and then there will be great tribulation. The first three and a half years were the tribulation. You know, there were things happening in the, on the, uh, global, you know, the stars and everything happening. It was horrible. But after the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation uh, begins or affliction or anguish happens. And the great tribulation is going to be worse than the Babylonian invasion, Assyrian invasion, Roman conquest, and the Holocaust all combined. And so, Jews, it's going to be bad. Get out of Jerusalem. Flee to the mountains. What mountains? You know, around um, Israel, there's, you know, there's mountains, that's for sure. Most of them are not covered with trees and would not be a good place for a whole nation to hide. But there is a, a mountain system over in Jordan called Petra. I don't know if you've ever heard of Petra, but it's basically an ancient city that's built into the mountain. And, you know, I don't know, perhaps it's the place that the Jews are going to flee. I'm really not dogmatic about it because I probably just spoiled it for Satan, you know, and now he's like, ah, I'm high, you know, try to get here. I've got it covered, you know, but, um, but let's read Revelation chapter 12 because we read about what happens as Israel flees away from Jerusalem right after the abomination of desolation. Everyone doing okay? Maybe this is a good time to stretch. We're almost done. You know, make a little fan out of your bulletin, uh, Roll up your sleeves. Let's, let's do this thing. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. We read of the woman fleeing into the wilderness. And if you look at it, the woman's a picture of Israel. And she has a place prepared by God there. That's one reason I'm like, could this be Petra? I mean, certainly looks like some place that's been prepared for something. That's, that's one of the only entrances into the city is, is through there. So it's very well protected. And, um, so there's this place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days or three and a half years and war broke out in heaven. So now we go from the earth, shoot up to heaven and look at what's happening in the heavenly realm during this time. War breaks out in heaven. Michael and an angels fight with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fight. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with them. Did you guys know that even today the devil is allowed into heaven? Oh, what? That just... That's not what Looney Tunes tells me. Well, okay. Uh, If you read the book of Job, you know that uh, all of the angels are appearing before God. And here comes Satan. And the Lord says, what are you doing? You know, you little schemer. And he goes, I'm going to and fro throughout the whole world looking for those people that I can accuse. And that's what devil means. It means he's a slanderer. He's an accuser of the brethren. And that's what he does in heaven as he goes, don't you know what Jonathan did, God? How can you love Jonathan anymore? Don't you know what Julie did? Or don't you know what Aaron did? They're just a bunch of trashies. You should never love them. And the Lord's like, hey, you know what? Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Their sins are covered. I don't even see them anymore. 
Isn't that awesome? But there comes a day in the tribulation when there's a big war that happens and Satan is kicked out. And let me tell you guys, he is angry. He is not happy to be kicked out. And let's look at verse 12. You know, the heavens are rejoicing. He's kicked out. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth for the, and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And this is why it's now the great tribulation, because not only is God pouring out wrath on a Christ rejecting world so that they'll turn to him, but Satan is pouring out wrath on the world because he knows he has a short time. And what happens in a football or a basketball game when there's seconds left on the clock, you're dribbling and you're dribbling. Suddenly you get sucker punched in the side of the face or you get face masks, you know, or someone pulls down your basketball shorts and you trip over your sneakers. You know, that type of stuff happens in the final seconds of the game. And that's exactly what Satan, he's watching the time clock. He knows the prophecies. He sees the signs. He saw the earthquake in Chile yesterday. He know, you know, oh man, I'm really trying to get these, these people that are calling themselves Christians to fall. I'm really trying to destroy all of Israel so that God's promise that all Israel would be saved won't happen. He's, he's gone hardcore at, you know, destroying the works of God's hands. And verse 13 Now, when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman or Israel who gave birth to Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly in the wilderness. I wonder if John saw some kind of like huge plane or something, but who knows? Could be a totally giant eagle Um, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time, a time and times and half a time, three and a half years. From the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Perhaps these are bombs, you know, that, the, you know, that can't get to them because they're hiding in the mountain. Perhaps it's an actual flood and something spiritual happens, you know, in the, in the spiritual realm. It opens up a hole, the water, you know... Uh, Definitely don't have it figured out. And then verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he's trying to kill Israel, you know, the Antichrist and Satan, they're all trying to to kill Israel. And interesting, you read Revelation chapter 13 and the devil has his own little false trinity set up during the tribulation. Did you know that? You've got the devil who's trying to act like the father You've got the Antichrist who he's going to set him up in the, in the temple himself up to be worshipped. He's even going to get a wound on his head that's going to either kill him or almost kill him. And he's going to try and come back to life mimicking what Jesus has done. And then you have in Revelation 13 the false prophet who testifies and tries to get the whole world to worship the Antichrist. Just like our Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us, testifies of Jesus and points all the worship towards Jesus. So what a schemer, huh? Uh, Anyways, Satan begins to completely taking cheap shots to destroy Israel, any remaining Jews, or anyone that now loves Jesus or that Jesus loves. And then you look at verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. This is horrible. This is something that I mean, if you look at Revelation, you look at the global things, you know, all of the grass being burnt up, all of the fish in the sea dying, all of the waters turning to blood, all of the stars from heaven falling onto the earth. You know, these crazy things that happen, it's never happened in history before. And in the way that the Bible talks about it happening. And, uh, you know, I know that there's other views out there and I'm not saying I have it all figured out. I just personally hold that this is all future stuff that could happen. It could begin happening at any second. But how awesome that even in a time of God's wrath uh, being poured out on the world that was rejected him, he shows mercy to the world on behalf of the elect here. And Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 prophesies about the tribulation period and says, alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble or Israel's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And that just takes us to Revelation chapter 11, that when Paul says, all Israel is going to be saved someday. Israel's going to come to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And next week we'll talk about, they'll see Jesus coming back. 
on a white horse, I believe will be with him. He comes in the clouds, Jude tells us, with ten thousands of, of his saints. And they're going to look on him who they pierced and they're going to weep. Because they, they killed him. They killed the Messiah. And they'll weep as one weeps for their only son. And so that's where we're going to end for the sake of time. I really had it that we could almost finish the chapter. Let's go ahead and have the worship team come back up. And You know, what does all of this mean? You know, I'll be honest with you. There's some people out there that study end times. And I would probably say theologically, I, I agree with them. But socially, I don't. <laughs> There's some crazies out there. I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm really trying not to be one of them. And uh, I want to walk in love towards my other Jesus-loving brothers who hold other opinions. I want to walk in humility. At the same time, I have to be faithful to you guys and to the Lord that as I work through the scriptures, I'm rightly dividing it for you. And this is what makes the best sense to me. But man, I believe Jesus is coming soon. I believe he has an imminent return. That Man, I want to be looking up. Like we talked about last week in 2 Peter chapter 3, you know, if he's coming soon at any second, what manner of people ought we to be in godliness and purity and holy living? You know, man, if you're here today and you don't love Jesus, if you're at war with Jesus today, you might be a nice person, don't get me wrong. But if you've never received Jesus' sacrifice for your sins, if you haven't been washed in the blood, the Bible says that you're at enmity with God. You're at war with God. You're not the friend of God. Don't be deceived. You are an enemy of God. Hard news, I know. But the good news is, the second you bow your heart to Jesus as Savior, as Lord, your sins will be forgiven and washed away. And he'll remember them no more. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far your transgressions will be removed from you. And as we've looked about how his word is true, it all comes to pass. Heaven and earth will pass away. His words will always remain. I want to be on his side. You know, something that we'll conclude with next week is that Luke tells us, pray that you'll be found worthy to escape these things. And in Revelation chapter three, there's a letter written to the church of Philadelphia, which is known as the faithful church. And Jesus tells them, if you continue and overcome, keep living for me, I'll take you out before this time of wrath. Romans chapter 5 tells us that he saves us from the wrath to come through his blood. And today, if you're an enemy of his, you've got a future of wrath coming upon you. But it doesn't have to be. It didn't have to be so for Jerusalem in 70 AD, and it doesn't have to be for you. If you'll just receive his love, that's all it is, receiving his love. Receiving a sacrifice for your sins. And if you want to do that today, if you walked in those double doors and you were at war with God, and today you hear his voice saying, come to me. Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and comes and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll dine with him and he with me. Today, the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart saying, won't you please receive me? I want to save you from all of these things. If you'll obey, there's blessing. If you disobey, there's judgment. Won't you obey today? If that's you, I want to ask you to be very brave right now. I want you to receive the love of Jesus. And I just want you to lift up your hand right now where you're at. Just lift up your hand and say, Rory, I don't want the wrath of God. I want the love of Jesus. I've seen how much he loves me and I want to love him too. Rory, will you pray for me? I want to be saved. 
I want to be saved from the wrath to come. I want to be saved from my sin and my sinful, destructive behavior here on earth. Rory, pray for me. I want this. Is there anybody at all where you're at? Just lift up your hand. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. Won't you see how much he loved you by hanging on the cross, naked and open on the Roman street, being spat and mocked and scourged and beaten and executed for you? He had you in mind. Man, I encourage you. He showed bravery for you. Will you show bravery for him and show love for him and receive him today? And I just ask you, lift up your hands so I can pray for you. I won't know who you are unless you lift up your hand. Lord sees you. Awesome. Man, just as you lift up your hand, just know this is a beautiful moment. The Bible says that the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. Man, just, just like a wedding day, just, man, enjoy this moment. Just think about how your sins, everything you've ever done, washed away. He remembers them no more. You're forgiven. And he wants to restore you. He wants to do a beautiful work in your life. Is there anybody else right now? Don't let this moment pass. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today's the day of salvation. Jesus says, watch, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. All of these things could happen this afternoon. Are you going to be ready? Do you have Jesus in your life? Anybody else? Just for the lady that rose her hand, I just going to pray for you and why don't you just repeat after me just you can pray out loud or in your heart just in your just the best way you can just why don't you pray this prayer with me say dear Jesus I'm in awe of you and of your great love towards me that you showed me on the cross thank you for shedding your blood for my sin Thank you for dying that I could live. Forgive me of all of my sins. Please heal my life however I've destroyed it. Please work a good work in my life. And thank you for forgiving me. Help me to live a life worthy of your name. And Lord, here we are together. We just want to worship you just as theology promotes doxology. And so, Lord, we want to praise you together, looking at how your word stands true, how not one jot or tittle will fall away, Lord. It'll all come to pass. And so, Lord, prompt us every second, Lord, every minute of the day to look up, Lord, and to be living lives of holiness, that we might not be ashamed at your coming. As we sing this last song, why don't we just stand together? You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.